Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Carl Rylott, the host of the A History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Ever since I heard about Byzantium, I have been fascinated by this forgotten land and its stunning artworks. The Empire story is essential to understand the history of Europe for the centuries after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And there is no one better to tell that story than Robin. My own podcast refers frequently to the Byzantines and has so far covered their conflicts with Arabs, Bulgarians and Celtic Turks. But it is much about the background and personalities behind the battles as the military aspects. The latest episode is about the tragic fall of Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade. If you'd like to take a look, please search for History of Europe, Key Battles on iTunes or your favourite search engine. That's the end of my plug. I'll now hand you over to Robin. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 85, The People. Last time, we talked about imperial territory. This time, we talk about the people who lived there and answer some of your questions about daily life. We'll start at the top and work our way down the social scale. At the very top of the tree remains the emperor, of course. His, or her, wealth was greatly reduced with the loss of the eastern provinces, but then again, so was everyone else's. The emperor remained the greatest landowner in Byzantium, with imperial estates spread across the realm. In theory, if a piece of land was abandoned for a number of years, then it automatically became the property of the government. Although in practice, we suspect that local landowners swooped in if they could. The emperor and his family lived in the great palace, which remained the power centre of the Roman world. Household staff, important officials, mid-level bureaucrats and a troop of soldiers all lived in the palace too. Daily the gates would open, and hundreds of others would mill in and out, completing the functions which kept the state running. Up on the website and social media I have posted another of my scans, this time from the Palgrave Atlas of Byzantine history, showing the web of imperial office holders and palace employees. It's a slightly bewildering collection of roles, but hopefully it will be helpful in reminding you who is who. The men reporting directly to the emperor include the quaestor, the senior legal official, 
the prefect of Constantinople, responsible for the city, the Sakelarios, who supervised financial matters, the postal logothete in charge of communication, and all the generals, or strategos, of the themes. All of these positions you should be relatively familiar with, although the postal logothete is marked logothete of the dromos, or thromos, on the chart. The only other post I think you should remember is the logothete of the Genicon, or General Financial Ministry, marked General Treasury on the chart. This is the position which Nicephorus, our new emperor in the narrative, held before he deposed Irene. You may remember from the end of last century, but it's worth reiterating, Byzantine government was more flexible than our modern political cabinets. So each of these positions morphed and changed over the centuries, depending on who held which post. So if the emperor's brother served as city prefect, suddenly that role might become far more influential than it would be at another time. Or, as we saw with Stavrakios and Etios, Irene's eunuchs, men might gather power around themselves and thus take charge of other colleagues' business. All of this is to say that even if we knew who was serving in each post at any moment, it wouldn't prove who was responsible for good or bad government. The rise of those palace eunuchs brings us to the other side of the diagram. Another set of officials could also wield great power. These were the master of ceremonies, the chamberlain of the imperial bedchamber, the curo palates, the manager or concierge of the palace, the master of the private wardrobe, the master of the privy purse, and of course, the domestic of the scoli, as in the head of the regiment of the Tachmata stationed in the city. In the highly stratified and personal politics of Byzantium, who you knew was everything. Direct access and communication with the royal family was hugely valuable, and therefore some palace functions which might seem menial, were actually highly coveted roles. Positions which allowed close proximity to the empress and her children would be filled by eunuchs, and that's why, despite laws against it, some Byzantine families castrated their own sons in the hope that they might one day stroll around the corridors of power. As I also covered at the end of last century, the rank of senator, though sort of still in existence, no longer meant what it once had. You could no longer bequeath any rank or title to your children, and the whole point of senatorial status, why it was so coveted, was that it brought privileges which marked your family out. The Senate collectively might still be referred to in imperial ceremonies, but had come to mean the assembled office holders and dignitaries of the court. The court was where all aspiring Byzantines aimed to be. With the decline of the cities and the loss of the eastern provinces, the court was the only place left to gain real social status, unless you were a very senior bishop or general. Those serving in government roles enjoyed the prestige of standing next to the emperor at banquets, receptions and processions, this brought with it huge financial rewards, not only from your salary, but the opportunity to enrich yourself doing favours for others. And once you left your job, you kept the titles that went with it. 
The social elite was filled with men who had been granted a particular title or rank as reward for service or that they had purchased. These men could also take part in the pageantry of court life, but at a greater distance from where the royal family stood. Trying to improve your position within the hierarchy was the great game of the Roman elite. In part for social reasons, in part for state service, but also for cash. Many positions came with an imperial salary, stipend or annual bonus, and in tough economic times, when your estate could be ransacked by marauding Arabs or decimated by a storm, a fixed payment of gold coins provided genuine security. I've talked before about the importance of taxation in keeping the Roman Empire functioning. It wasn't just the armies that kept going in the dark days, it was also the elite. Without the chance to enjoy the benefits of that tax money, wealthy landowners might have turned their back on Byzantium and made deals with the invading Arabs. The rich in the Western Empire had done this when the Goths and Franks moved in. The fact that the Constantinopolitan court kept the honey flowing meant that the busy bees of Byzantium kept swarming to the palace to accept roles in the administration of empire. You might think that that doesn't sound so great. This is clearly a self-serving oligarchy taxing the peasants who they barely defend so that they can all play dress up and throw gold coins at one another. In one sense, that's true. But as uncomfortable as it might seem, this was an effective system for corralling the elite into serving the state and thus keeping the Roman world together. Like most medieval and ancient societies, the Byzantines were concerned with personal and family honour. Gaining, asserting and displaying that status was a consuming activity. If you didn't join in, your honour could always be questioned by those holding imperial titles and offices. So in order to maintain your honour and prove it to others, you had to go to Constantinople and take part in the game. Like people today, most Byzantines were concerned primarily with their own well-being. If the state could use that desire to get them to serve the empire, then so be it. And as for the corruption in the system, this too is a feature of pre-modern societies. Without the technology or the manpower to properly track and record transactions between individuals, then bribery, extortion and extra-legal deals will always take place. If everyone is doing it, then it just becomes an accepted part of daily life. You may remember the monks Theodore and Plato, who objected so strongly to Constantine VI's illegal marriage back in the narrative. In his writings, Theodore comments that Plato amassed huge wealth while serving as the official responsible for controlling weights and measures in the capital. He, a very religious man, didn't think this was immoral or corrupt in any way. Now, if you're a poor farmer who moved to Constantinople from a faraway province, you're not likely to do well. With no connections and no money, there is no motivation for anyone to do you any favours. Yet the state was still there. You could still join the army, or become a servant, or somehow provide service to the government that might lead to rewards down the line. 
That incentive kept this large, unwieldy system going and kept the Roman Empire in existence. Despite the lure of the court, respectable Byzantine families still owned land. Our knowledge of patents of land ownership is limited, though. We know that the vast senatorial estates of previous centuries had disappeared, but we don't know how big the holdings of the rich were in 800 AD. As I just mentioned, imperial titles and offices could not be passed on to the next generation, which helped prevent a hereditary aristocracy from developing, as it did in parts of the West. Byzantine inheritance laws also made it tricky for huge landed estates to develop. Property could be left to male and female offspring, and at times a third or even half of an estate was reserved by law for the children, who would then divide what was left equally between them. It was in the government's interests to keep the law this way. Large landowners are harder to tax than smaller ones, as they have the power to evade or to bribe, hence forcing estates to be divided between children. This was also a practical concern for the children, as the rich sometimes left their wealth to the church or to a monastery, and the state didn't really want this. They wanted independent farmers inheriting their parents' land and then paying tax on it. In practice, of course, all sorts of different arrangements took place. Daughters were given a dowry when they got married, and it's not clear if that was their inheritance done or if they could then return to claim a piece of the parental estate. In many cases, women were not educated and so might lack knowledge of the law. It might depend on their husband's willingness to contest a will for her. Or families could sometimes divide their estates during their lifetime to ensure that their children each had their own land to work. Certainly, all families would try to arrange suitable marriages. If we're going to have to divide our lands up, we might as well marry into neighbouring families and forge strong bonds so at least the land will stay within our collective control. It was illegal to marry close cousins and other family members, but presumably this did happen all the time. Every family is different, of course. Some doubtless favoured their eldest son and prepared the way for him to take control of everything, while others portioned things out more equitably. Some families got on well and made sensible arrangements. Some fell into bitter feuds over who should get what. The super-rich would hire estate managers to run things while they lived in the capital, while those with smaller fortunes might live on their estates but hire others to do the work. So what about below that level? What about the average Byzantine farmer? In theory, there were three types of peasant-level farmer. Coloni, liberi, and freeholders. The liberi were free people, but they signed up to work a particular piece of land for 30 years. Your plot was registered for the land tax and you owed the government directly, but you were free to conduct your own business and could leave the land to your children, who could then move on after the 30-year lease ran out if they wanted to. The coloni, on the other hand, were bound to their land hereditarily. 
they worked a plot for a local landlord and gave him a share of their produce so that he could pay the land tax. This dynamic could lead to serfdom and a crafty master taking advantage. But in theory, the Coloni were protected by law. A Coloni couldn't be kicked off his land, nor could the landlord change his rent because the amount of tax due was fixed. But, as we've already discussed, corruption was rife, so the personal relationship between a Coloni and his landlord was probably key to each case. And then there were the freeholders, who could range from the mega-wealthy to people no better off than the Coloni they shared a village with. The smaller freeholders were always under pressure, they owed taxes to the government, and their wealthy neighbours were always sniffing around, looking to buy them out. Under this kind of pressure or after a bad harvest, some would offer their land to a wealthy patron or the local bishop in exchange for becoming their coloni. Many felt this offered them better protection against disaster. Finally, wage labourers did exist. They might appear seasonally to help with big jobs. They might be from local farms who supplemented their income by helping out on a larger estate. Listener K asked what taxes existed at this point and how were they collected. The Emperor Nicephorus is just about to introduce various financial reforms, uh, as you might guess from the fact that he comes from the General Financial Ministry, but here's the situation up to 800 AD. The skeleton of the Byzantine tax system does indeed go all the way back to the reforms of Diocletian during the crisis of the 3rd century. The government would work out its requirements for the next tax cycle, then calculate the amount people owed by measuring the relationship between their productive land and the human and animal muscle they had available to exploit it. Over time, some important changes were introduced. Uh, When people abandoned their farms for whatever reason, the land lay unproductive. But the government had already made its calculations and couldn't afford to take in less. So eventually it was law that each community uh, was now assessed and expected to deliver a certain amount of tax, making the community as a whole responsible for abandoned land in the vicinity. Naturally, this was not a popular policy. Another reform to the system was to separate the individuals from the land. So the land was now assessed on its potential productivity and then the people were taxed per head. We don't know which administration made this change, but it was probably one of Heraclius's descendants. During that time of chaos and collapse, we can imagine that ensuring that as much tax was collected as possible became a major priority. Uh, a census was recorded by our historians uh, four times in a 60-year period uh, during the reigns of Constance II and Constantine and Justinian and so on, and there may have been more that weren't reported. One of these asked for a registration of newborn male infants, which suggests an attempt to get a new poll tax up and running. The land tax was assessed every 30 years, with a land register kept to record ownership of each farm, And, naturally, we hear of serial abuse of this system by tax collectors, inspectors, and landlords, but generally it allowed at least some record of the amount each farm owed. 
Estimates of how much tax each farm paid vary from 5 to 15% of the annual harvest. In many places, this was paid in kind, as markets weren't developed enough to maintain a cash economy. This was slowly changing, though. In the more prosperous western part of the empire, money was back in general circulation by 800. On top of the land and poll tax, the government made various supplementary impositions, or extraordinary levies, on the population. These were usually connected to military campaigns or infrastructure projects. These demands would be in kind, so officials and soldiers might demand food or products and consume them as they passed through your area, or they might ask you to ferry goods for them, or put them up for the night. In some areas, farms living near theme troops might permanently be handing over their produce to feed soldiers. In other areas, your tax could be paid in spears, arrows, leather, metals, clothes or pottery. Local imperial officials would man the warehouses where goods were stored and distributed to the troops. In theory, this should all be logged and deducted from your tax burden, but it's easy to imagine how that system might go awry. So what did a small family farm look like? Aiding me in this is Michael Routman's wonderful book, Daily Life in the Byzantine Empire. From this, I took some photos of his illustrations and images. So if you look on the website, you'll see examples of Syrian, Cypriot and Anatolian farms. Our imaginary farm has some fields, a meadow, a bit of deserted land. It would be part of a larger village community with boundary markers or heaps of stones to indicate where one farm began and another ended. Usually villages established themselves near to a river or some woodland which were held in common. In many cases they also communally owned the local herd of sheep and goats. Somewhere on the estate the family home would be located. These were usually built around a central courtyard An enclosed area was important to keep your domestic animals, particularly the chickens, from wandering off. This courtyard would also be the setting for family meals and domestic chores. A kitchen garden would be kept too, to grow vegetables and fruit. Perhaps there'd also be a raised terrace to grow olives and grapes on. The house would be made of cheap local material, so stone and mud bricks, with perhaps timber and thatch up on a second story. Usually, stones and brick would be mixed together to make the first floor, and then perhaps just compressed earth fixed in place by a timber framework for a second story. A thick coat of mud or lime was put over surfaces to stop them from weathering. A typical single-family dwelling would have three or four rooms, some set aside for storing food and tools. Plumbing was limited to a drain. Windows didn't have glass. Floors were dirt, covered with hides. Nearby would be the few most vital pieces of technology. A well, a press, a mill, and a threshing platform. The wider village would help fill in skill shortages. 
So an ox herd would tend the animals, while local blacksmiths, carpenters and potters would be kept busy. There might also be a local mason, a tailor, a weaver. These were usually secondary occupations rather than full-time jobs. Many villages had a local priest who was himself a farmer. He wouldn't deliver the sacraments or a sermon, but he would deal with everyday prayers and burials, and might man the local oratory if no church was nearby. Some listeners asked about the diet of this theoretical family. Well, cereals were the cornerstone of the Byzantine meal. They kept you full. Barley and millet produced porridge and gruel. Bread was baked and sometimes turned into biscuits, which would keep for longer. A special kind of very large biscuit was produced for soldiers, and it was said that Justin, as in Justinian's uncle, survived only on one of these, or several of these, as he trekked across the Balkans to get to Constantinople. Obviously, some foods were seasonal, but generally beans, lentils, chickpeas, and green vegetables would supplement your cereals. Olive oil was used generously in cooking, and wine accompanied most meals. Meat tended only to be eaten on special occasions, though if you lived near a good river, a lake, or the sea, then you could add seafood. Your domestic animals would keep you supplied with eggs and milk, which could then be stored for longer, as butter and cheese. Generally, people would have a light breakfast and then a main meal in the evening. Families would eat together in the courtyard in good weather, sitting on benches or chairs. Some still reclined, but it doesn't seem likely in the countryside. They might eat with their hands, depending on the food, which was generally served in broad ceramic bowls or shallow dishes. Iron or bronze knives were used with handles made of bone. Spoons existed, certainly large wooden ones for cooking, and similarly large forks were used for lifting food in and out of the fire, but we aren't aware of actual table forks until the 10th and 11th centuries. Wine was poured from flagons into ceramic cups or a glass goblet if you had one. For flavour, domestic spices were used like coriander, cumin, mustard and saffron. Common vegetables that we'd recognise. Carrot, cucumber, cabbage, cress, radish, beetroot, turnip, onion, parsnip and eggplant. Fruit would be apples, cherries, figs, pears and pomegranates. Nuts were also a common snack food. Finally, vinegar, made from grapes, barley, oats or other crops, was a household staple. It was used for pickling vegetables and meat, cooking and seasoning food, drinking when mixed with water, and as an all-round disinfectant. Aside from the landowners and workers... Byzantine society was made up of soldiers, merchants, and monks. We'll deal with soldiers in another episode. Merchants occupied an interesting position. As one historian put it, they had no ideological role in Roman society. If you were noble, you owned land. If you were a peasant, you worked it. Nobles ran the government, peasants became soldiers. Between these two groups, the state would flourish. But merchant activity wasn't really valued in Byzantine culture. 
landowning had for millennia been the most valued occupation of a gentleman, whereas being a trader was seen as an unworthy occupation. Interestingly, the official who charges extra for services he's supposed to provide for free is fine, but merchants were constantly under suspicion of lying and deceiving people to make money. They probably had to. In an undeveloped capitalist economy, especially in our period where relations with the caliphate were poor, speculating in trade could be risky. But someone had to do it. Finished goods were still shipped around to sell to the wealthy. Foreign spices like pepper, cinnamon, clove, musk and mace could fetch a good price. Fairs were still held outside cities, usually on a saint's day, and men must have helped facilitate exchange between local producers and those from further away. Yet we hear of few men who made a fortune in trade and were accepted into the upper echelons of society. Sadly, trading never would take off in Byzantium like it did in, say, Venice. And that fact will come back to be significant down the road. Monks, meanwhile, were held in far higher esteem. Out in the countryside, the local monastery might become a site of pilgrimage, of confession and advice. The local bishop and his priests were viewed with suspicion by some because they worked so closely with the state. Whereas the holy men, who had renounced this world, were evidently more trustworthy, they continued to offer many of the social services which the cities used to provide. They housed the poor, they treated the sick, they even took in criminals who had been exiled. They might also serve as a hospice, somewhere the elderly would go to prepare for death. There was, however, a cynical side to some monasteries. Founding one was a loophole which allowed the wealthy to create a sort of family shrine the new monastic house would maintain the family's wealth in one place and might even employ relatives to work there. This became quite a popular route to take, founding your own monastery. Our historian Theophanes was one of these, though I'm not slandering his motives. The government kept an eye on the rich and would often ask monastic estates to repair local roads and bridges to make sure they were contributing to the state's needs. The final people we'll talk about are the empire's minorities. Not all Byzantines were Greek-speaking Roman Christians. Listener A.H., for example, asks for more information about the Syrians that Constantine V relocated to Thrace. It's a very good question, and I imagine their story was a fascinating one, but alas, I haven't yet come across anything solid about them. In the case of small numbers of settlers, you imagine that they would want their children to fit in locally, and within a few generations a strong sense of their past might be gone. I have no figures on those who Constantine moved. We do, however, have a little more to go on with the Slavs who Justinian II forced to relocate to Anatolia at the end of the last century. This was a far larger operation involving the imperial fleet, and clearly tens of thousands of people were on the move. The military men of this group were then recruited into the Byzantine army, and they of course ended up switching sides and living in the caliphate. Justinian was said to have turned on their wives and children with great slaughter. 
but this may not have happened. In fact, we hear that full Slavic military units from the exact same area were serving in the army deep into the 10th century. So it seems this large migrant community maintained their cultural distinctiveness despite their relocation. There are other groups like this, particularly Armenian communities, who fled into Anatolia, who also set themselves apart. The short-lived emperor Vardan the Armenian may have come from such a group living in Pergamum. Speaking of Armenia, up in the mountains, imperial control was weak, and a new religious movement had been developing across the past century. These were the Paulicians, who held a dualist version of Christian doctrine. Dualist meaning they emphasized the struggle between good and evil, rather than the more nuanced explanation of suffering in orthodox doctrine. Our understanding of their theology is patchy. They rejected the Old Testament, but accepted most of the New, though they denied the virgin birth and spurned the worship of saints and icons. It took the authorities some time to notice their activities. Apparently two of their leaders were executed for heresy, but this did little to affect the activities of the movement. I don't think their story is crucial to the narrative, but it's an interesting insight into the religious life of the empire. One historian argued that official Christianity, for those who took it seriously, veered close to a philosophical system with all those debates about the exact nature of Christ. Whereas the Paulicians were a version of popular Christianity, which expressed itself through more readily accessible ideas, like the need for good to triumph over evil in order to provide salvation. Other splinter groups, like the Athenganians and the Montanists, also sprouted up across Anatolia. We have few details on the specific lives of their communities, but clearly there was always resistance to centrally imposed dogma. One group who always stood out in Byzantium were, of course, the Jews. In our narrative so far, we've seen Justinian tighten the laws restricting their rights, and both Heraclius and Leo III announced their intention to baptize the empire's remaining Jews. In the latter two cases, the emperor's earthly goal was to stamp out dissidents rather than actually convert individuals. I won't go into the specifics, which are murky in both cases, but it seems that specific groups of Jews and non-Jews amongst them were targeted on these occasions and forced to show obedience to the emperor. In the cases where a formal baptism took place, it was designed to be like the old demands for Christians to make a sacrifice to the Caesars back in pagan times. As in, these groups of Jews were asked to be formally baptized and swear loyalty to the emperor. But once that was over, no one expected them to show up in church the next Sunday. Even the most zealous Christian understood that conversion by force was insincere, and some theologians argued that Jews would pollute the orthodox body if you pushed them to join it. So it was best to leave them alone. All the evidence we have suggests that Byzantine Jews continued to live their lives as they had done for centuries. 
Jewish synagogues and cemeteries are found in cities across the empire. Large communities lived at Sardis, Amorium, Seleucia, Thessalonica, Constantinople, and Thebes. They were known for their work in the textile trade and glassmaking, for being smiths, tanners, scribes, translators, and physicians. These groups would have a chief rabbi who would negotiate with the imperial authorities on their behalf. And of course, I can't speak for everyday abuse and racism, but from the sources, most attacks on the Jewish community remained literary rather than physical. The Jews were blamed for almost every problem the Orthodox Church faced. Naturally, some pointed to Jewish criticism of idolatry as the origin of iconoclasm. It seems, though, that most Jewish communities were an established part of Byzantine life and simply carried on as they'd always done. In the Quinisext Council, uh, held by Justinian II, Christians were banned from various practices associated with the Jewish community and from consulting Jewish doctors, who people clearly thought were good at their job. This council was held in the 690s, Yet these exact same complaints were voiced by John Chrysostom back in the 380s. The Jews of Byzantium had been a part of the fabric of Roman life for centuries, and by 800 AD their position was largely unchanged. Finally, the lowest of the low in the empire were slaves. The Christianization of the empire had made large plantation-style slave operations unfashionable, but the end of wars of conquest had largely made this impractical anyway. Legally speaking, slaves continued to exist as they always had done. They were their master's property and weren't allowed to own anything themselves. All across the empire, they existed in the homes of the wealthy or the fields of the poor, but we assume at lower levels than they once had. Uh, They might cook, clean, or raise the children, or be put to work making bricks or processing crops. Skilled slaves were always in demand so that they could help weave baskets or make textiles. Slaves were apparently often put to work by the government in silk production or armament workshops. What had changed from ancient times was that there were many paid servants, some of them freedmen, working alongside the slaves. It was expected that you would free your slaves after a certain period of time. There was a special church service designed for manumission. Many would then stay in the village they'd worked in and start a family of their own. Most slaves were prisoners of war, but others were bought from pirates or traders on the coast. It all sounds more humane and relaxed than the excesses of slave ownership in the popular imagination, but it's surprising in some ways that Christianity had altered this situation so little. That's it for today. There will be more daily life details coming in future episodes, But while you're waiting for them, why not check out A History of Europe, Key Battles by Carl Reilert. Carl is covering the major military engagements across European history, beginning with the Battle of Marathon. There are plenty of uh, engagements 
covered that you'll be familiar with, like the Battle of Zama, the Teutoburg Forest, and the Battle of Yarmouk. Karl has just reached the Fourth Crusade, one of the seminal moments in Byzantine history. Check out the podcast on iTunes or at historyeurope.net. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.